Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the New Testament letter of Philippians. Uh, We're going to read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9 this evening. Uh, You'll find our reading on page 982 of the Pew Bibles. Page 982. Uh, We're reading Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4, and then reading down to verse 9. And this is the passage that Richard is going to come and speak to us from later in our service. Philippians 4, page 982 of our Pew Bibles, and we're beginning our reading at verse 4. This is God's word to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, Please turn with me in your Bibles to the passage Stephen read for us earlier from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. While you're doing that, can I say, don't do handling the word, or you might end up here. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Um, I, I don't remember any straws being drawn either, but um, I think it was a fix-up between Ian and Stephen. Um, no, I would recommend that you do handling the word. It was very interesting. It was, um, I found it very useful. You might disagree by the time this talk's over, but um, let's see how this goes. Uh, last Sunday night... Um, Andrew stood in this pulpit and he had to change his sermon at the last minute because um, the speaker last Sunday morning um, had been speaking on the exact same passage. Well, Stephen wasn't speaking on the exact same passage this morning, but he was certainly speaking on a very similar topic to what I'm going to speak on tonight, and that is uh, unity in the church. Uh, I don't know if he planned that or not, but it seems to be the way it has fallen. Why do I um, say that? Well, the book of Philippians was uh, written by the Apostle Paul. He was uh, writing it to a church that he planted in uh, Ephesus, in the city, or, Ephesus were in their own book, in Philippi uh, several years earlier. Um, he was writing it to them because they were going through a period of trouble, a period of hardship, and a period of worry and anxiety. They seem have had problems and we can glean that from the text there's a lot of things we can glean as we read through the whole book of philippians but to get to the bottom of the book of philippians we need to go back to acts chapter 16. there we read about the people that paul was writing to it wasn't just a church a nameless church it was a group of people and we know some of their names there was lydia in her household there was a slave girl which paul drove a demon out of and there was a Philippian jailer 
um, and his household as well. These were the people that Paul was writing this book to. And these are the people we need to keep in mind because these were real people like us. These were real churches like us that lived um, 2,000 years ago. These people seem to have had problems in the years since Paul left the church. Paul himself had problems. Paul was locked up in prison by this point. But the church in Philippi seemed to be having a lot of problems. They knew they needed help um, because the problems they were having were, were quite severe. They seemed to have fallen into disunity. They seemed to have fallen into self-seeking. They seemed to have fallen into fighting between themselves. Two women in particular who were in the leadership seemed to have got a particular mention, Uria and Syntyche. So there was big problems. Also, there were false teachers in the church who were teaching heresies um, and teaching that if the Gentiles in Philippi wanted to be believers, they would need to um, follow the customs of the Jews. There was um, financial problems in the church as well. The people were struggling financially. They knew they had problems in Philippi. So what were they going to do about it? Well, they seem to have come up with a bit of a plan from what we can gather in the book. The plan seems to have gone something like this. Let's take up a big collection of money. Let's give it to one of our members, Epaphroditus. Send him to Rome. See if he can find Paul, who was in prison in Rome. And see if he can um, send any help, preferably in the form of Timothy. Because Timothy was in Rome at that time with Paul. Um, why Timothy? Well, it's easy to think that Paul and Silas were the only ones that founded the church in Philippi. Uh, because we read about them in prison, but it wasn't just Paul and Silas. If we read the book of Acts, we read that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke were all um, in Philippi at the time. So that seems to be their plan. You can imagine how the conversation went. Right, Epaphroditus, you've got the money. Get yourself over to Rome. See if you can follow in with Paul. See if you can persuade him to send uh, Timothy to us, because things aren't good. The plan didn't get off to a particularly good start. We read in the book that Epaphroditus nearly died on the way to Rome, which wasn't good. Uh, but eventually he pulled through, made it to Rome, found Paul, gave him the money, and presumably told him about all the problems that they had going on in the church. This put Paul in a little bit of a sticky situation. What was he to do? He would have been heartbroken to hear about all the problems that were going on in the church in Philippi. These were people he knew. These were people he loved. These were people that he had spent much time with. These were people who, in chapter 1 of Philippians, he calls his joy and his crown. He loved these people, and he had been heartbroken to hear from Epaphroditus that they were having so much problems. So what was he going to do? He couldn't go. He was locked in prison in Rome under house arrest. He couldn't send Timothy because he needed him, as he tells us in chapter 2. He couldn't send Epaphroditus back empty-handed either because, well, he'd just given him a big financial gift. And you can understand how that conversation would have went if he'd got back to Philippi and they'd um, basically said to him, well, how did you get on in Rome? Did you find Paul? Yes, found him. Um, did he, you give him the money? Yes, give him the money. Has uh, he sent any help? No, he's not sending any help, but he took the money. You know, that wouldn't have went down particularly well. Paul couldn't refuse the money either because Luke tells us in chapter 28 of Acts he was under house arrest in Rome at his own expense. So a bit of a problem that Paul found himself in. So what was he going to do? Well, he decided all he could do at that time was to write this letter. And we should be glad that Paul um, 
they'd write this letter for the church in Philippi because it's a wonderful letter. It's a wonderful letter of encouragement, of peace. Um, it, it just lifts up the congregation in the midst of all their troubles. It wasn't a letter of rebuke. It would have been easy to rebuke them for falling into the, the sin of fighting and falling out with each other, but he doesn't do that. He builds the people up in this letter. So he probably also wanted to get across to the uh, church um, in Philippi that they really shouldn't uh, try anything like this again um, by coming to him and trying to get some help in the form of Timothy. We also need to remember that whilst it was Paul that gave this advice to the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who caused this letter to be written. Ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who has written this letter for all the churches through all the generations and that includes us here tonight in Bukna. This is advice for how congregations need to act if they fall into the problems that the church in Philippi faced. This is advice for how congregations need to act to avoid falling into the problems that the church in Philippi faced. It's a wonderful letter. I encourage you to read it all yourselves this week. There's the passage that Stephen read for us earlier really is the summary of the whole book. And in it, Paul gives four pieces of advice to churches that are struggling. He says, rejoice in the Lord, refocus on your calling, relieve your anxiety through prayer and thanksgiving, and reframe your mind. Let's look at these four instructions together. And the first thing that Paul says we need to do whenever times are tough, whenever we're struggling, or in order to avoid falling into these situations, we need to rejoice in the Lord, and we need to do it always. In this short statement, Paul is telling the Philippians they need to do two things. They need to rejoice in the Lord, and they need to do it always. That's remarkable advice to give to people who are really suffering and having a tough time. What Paul is trying to say is that we need, or sorry, to understand what Paul is saying, we need to realize that God created us capable of thinking, of having a will, and of feeling. But sin has turned it all upside down. We were created to think like God. As such, we would know what was right and true and set our wills in doing this. And in turn, this would affect how we felt. But that's not how it is, is it? Instead, our feelings tend to affect our wills. And our feelings tend to affect how we think. And we are only able to rejoice whenever we feel good. No, Paul says we must rejoice always. He is talking about a joy that does not depend on changing circumstances. But in him who never changes. Maybe Paul was thinking back to that first time he was in Philippi and he, him and Silas managed to get badly beaten up, thrown in a dungeon. And what do we find them doing um, in the middle of the night? Are they whining about it? Are they um, worried about their wounds and how much pain they're in? No, they're singing hymns and praise to God. Or maybe he's thinking about what he describes in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 31, where we read these words. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false bullers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold, and in exposure, and apart from all other things, there is a daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. We sometimes think we have problems. Paul had it worse. We shouldn't really be surprised that 
this is how Paul's life was, because in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, God tells Ananias to go find Paul, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This was a man who knew what suffering was, so Paul could talk with some authority about rejoicing um, in the Lord always and rejoicing despite our circumstances. Jesus spoke often, sorry, of rejoicing in his circumstances and to get our minds off our problems and to focus on our union with Christ. Jesus himself spoke of this union and the joy it would bring. In John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, Jesus, in that wonderful passage where he talks about being the true vine and his father being the vine dresser and talking about how we must uh, remain in him and abide in him and how we will bear much fruit, he finishes that wonderful speech by saying, these things I have spoken to you so that your joy, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says if we remain in him and focus on him, we will have joy. Paul is echoing this and seems to be saying, you've lost your focus. Stop looking at your problems and start rejoicing in your union with Christ. What circumstances are you going through in life at the moment that is stealing your joy? Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're bereaved. Maybe the cost of everyday life is getting you down because you're struggling financially. Whatever it is, we need to look at what we have in Christ and rejoice in that and focus on that and depend on that and ultimately take our ultimate joy from our salvation. In Romans 5, 1-3, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Be very careful here. Paul's not saying we're to be happy about the fact that we're suffering. What he is saying is that we rejoice when we are suffering because we know it will produce endurance, character, and hope. What about you? Are you someone who is dictated to by your circumstances? Or are you someone who no matter what takes joy because they are abiding in Christ and rejoices because of the endurance, the character, and the hope that that will produce? Let's be people who rejoice no matter what we are going through, because we have found Christ and we are one with him. The second thing that Paul tells the Philippians they need to do in the middle of their um, tough circumstances is that you need to be reasonable and focus on their calling. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. As I've already said, one of the particular problems in the church was fighting with each other and bickering. And two ladies in particular seem to have got a bit of a mention, uh, Yudia and Cynthia. What Paul is calling here is for reasonableness with dealing with other people who we dis disagree with. Or as the NIV puts it, gentleness. Or as the RSV puts it, and I prefer this term, forbearance. Paul is calling for the believers in Philippi to be gracious with others, even when they're not being treated fairly, even when they knew the other person was completely wrong, and to not insist on personal rights. As Christians, our primary concern should not be whether we are being treated fairly, but we should be preferring others to ourselves. Paul expands on this theme in some detail in chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4. He says this, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look only, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why are we to behave like this? Well, Paul tells us that as well. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. The reason that Christians should not insist on personal rights and work together graciously and reasonably with other believers is because of the fact that the Lord will return soon and we need to be united in our goal of pointing others to Christ. Fighting and arguing and bickering and behaving like the world will do nothing to win others for Christ. Look again at chapter 2 where Paul again goes into this in a bit more detail. Verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What Paul is saying is, why are you fighting with yourselves? You're supposed to be setting a shining example to the world. The Lord is coming back soon and you need to be about the business of winning souls for Christ and not fighting and arguing amongst yourselves. These words should really challenge us tonight. If you're a Christian, can you really say that you shine as a light in the world? Are you living as if you believe the Lord is coming back soon? Or is your behavior just like the world? No salt, no light, concerned only with working, making money, having a good time, falling out with others, insisting that you're treated fairly. If that is how we as Christians are living, then it would suggest that we do not really for one second believe that the Lord is going to return soon. Unbeliever, those of you in this building tonight and at home who are not saved, who are still on the broad road, who are still going to hell, what are you planning to do when the Lord returns? I have no doubt that there are many people who come into this building Sunday after Sunday, morning and evening, who have every intention of getting saved, who have every intention of repenting of their sin and getting right with God. But you're planning to do it at some other time in the future a more convenient hour. Let me say tonight graciously and humbly that if that, now if that is your plan, then Satan is delighted with that plan because it's straight from the pit of hell. There is no time to get these things sorted out. Jesus is on his way. The Lord is at hand, as Paul said. This is a vital, urgent, critical matter that you need to get sorted tonight. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24 verse 44 you must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him unbeliever if you have any thought at all towards salvation then after this service is over get the hold of stephen and speak to him before you go home don't wait till you go home don't phone him when you get home don't phone him in the morning speak to him before you go home and get this sorted tonight believer this is to be our life's work this should be the focus of each day shining as lights in the world let's guard against our conduct let's put no stumbling block or any excuse before any unbeliever quite the opposite let us live in such a way that we draw others to christ with how we live and how we love one another thirdly the third instruction that paul gives in this passage is pray and be thankful do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to god and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Up to now, Paul has, has highlighted the need for joy in the Lord, a clear focus on our calling. And now he focuses on the need for prayer and thankfulness. 
Once again, maybe he's thinking back to that first time in Philippi. It's easy to miss, but in Acts chapter 16, we all know that Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God uh, when they were in the dungeon, but it says they were praying and singing hymns to God. This is a bit of a recurring theme in Paul's letters. He tells the Thessalonians exactly the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, when he says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. And in Colossians 4, verse 2, he puts it another way. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thankfulness. Paul is highlighting the two key parts of any prayer. Supplication, where we ask for things, and thanksgiving, thanking God for the things we already have. What Paul is saying is that prayer and the spirit of thankfulness is the surest way we can experience God's peace in our hearts and in our minds. Again, let's remember that Paul is saying this to people who are having big, big problems. Why is it that thankfulness and prayer is so important? Well, for one, it's the example we see throughout the Old Testament. What did Daniel do in Daniel chapter 6 whenever he heard the king's degree that meant he was probably going to end up in the den of lions? In chapter 6 it says this, Now when Daniel learned that the degree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Or in Psalm 100 we read, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Or Psalm 92. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. Proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. To the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. For you make me glad by your deeds. I will sing for joy at what your hands have done. Isn't a little wonder that Paul talks so much about thankfulness and prayer. Thankfulness and prayer is so important. Because when we are thankful and we remember the things that God has done in the past. We bring to mind evidence of how he has acted and how he can act again. When we pray in faith. And remember the goodness of God in times past. How can we have anything other than peace in our hearts and peace in our minds? J.C. Ryle, writing on thankfulness and prayer, once said, It is a mercy that we are not in hell. It is of mercy that we have the hope of heaven. It is of mercy that we live in a land of spiritual light. It is of mercy that we have been called by the Spirit and not left to reap the fruit of our own ways. It is of mercy that we still live and have opportunities of glorifying God actively or passively. Surely these thoughts should crowd in our minds whenever we speak with God. Surely we should never open our lips in prayer without blessing God for that free grace by which we live and for that loving kindness which endures forever. So often we never pray and so often when we do it's a burden and a form and a duty we have to perform. Let's get more excited about the place of prayer. And let's ask for something when we pray and expect to receive it. And give God no rest until it is ours. Let's hold him to his word. And let's, as we sang at the start, stand in the promises of God. There's so much more we could say about prayer and thankfulness. The need for faith in prayer. The need to guard against sin if we want to see prayer answered. Sometimes we pray amiss. And sometimes, as the Bible puts it, we have not because we ask not. 
we're just too downright lazy to pray. Let me simply ask you tonight, do you pray in faith? And are you full of thankfulness? God forgive us for coming before his throne of grace in a doubting, thankless manner and expecting answered prayer and peace in our hearts. Now let's come boldly in prayer with confidence and thanksgiving. So often we dip in and out of prayer. We have seasons of prayer and seasons when we, not, uh, when we do not pray. This is why Paul says pray in everything. Peace in our hearts and minds will only come when we lay everything before the Lord and leave everything with the Lord. Notice that Paul also says this is a peace that cannot be understood. The only way to have it is to experience it. And the only way to experience it is to pray and be thankful. Fourthly and finally tonight, Paul says, we need to reframe our minds. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's final instructions to the believers in Philippi was to be careful what they think about. Here Paul telling us is that we need here Paul is telling us that we need to prioritize our minds. The idea that Paul is trying to convey here is there are certain things that we actively need to focus on and work hard at thinking about. Paul says Paul is saying that right thinking will lead to right living and wrong thinking will produce wrong living. If our minds are full of what is wrong, we can hardly expect to live out what is right. In our modern world, many people talk about mindfulness and the need to empty our minds if we want to find peace. What Paul is saying is, no, if we want peace, we need to fill our minds and we need to fill it with whatever is true, honourable, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent and praiseworthy. Is that how your mind is? Can you honestly say that that's the things that you think about? So often our minds are instead full of things of this world, things that are false, dishonourable, unjust, filthy, hateful, unworthy, awful and disgraceful. And why are our minds full of these things? Well, it's not because we went out and decided that we were going to fill our minds up with these things. No, it's because we didn't actively fill our minds up with the things that we should. When we fail to fill our minds up with the things that we should and the things that Paul mentions, then quite without any effort, our minds fill up with the things of the world. These four principles are instructions that we have looked at tonight for Christian living, and particularly this final instruction place a heavy responsibility on us as believers. These instructions are very much action-based. These are things we need to do. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have also obeyed me so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What Paul is talking about here is not our justification, but our sanctification. We know that salvation has got nothing to do with good works. What Paul is saying to those who are already saved is that your salvation must be worked outward each day in obedience to the word and ultimately with the help of the Spirit. The book of Philippians is ultimately a book about how we as Christians should live in the midst of a godless generation. It's about how we need to shine brightly as stars in the heavens. It's about how we need to work hard towards holiness to avoid falling into disunity and fighting and anxiety and heresy. To do this, we, always, we need to always actively rejoice in our union with Christ. 
We must always work towards our calling of winning others for Christ. We must constantly pray about everything in a spirit of thankfulness and we must actively start filling our minds with the word of God. What will this look like in practice, filling our minds with the word of God? Well, it might mean that in the evening, if we get sat down from the business of the day, that we stop looking at our phones, our newspapers and our TVs and start filling our minds with what's in the Bible. Let me ask you directly tonight, folks, and don't worry, I'm asking myself this as well. I've been looking at this sermon for quite some time and it's been a challenge. Are we working out our own salvation? Are you working out your own salvation? Are we any godlier and any more sanctified today than the day we were saved? One final thing to notice in the book of Philippians. In verse 1, Paul addresses the book to all the saints in Philippi. Certainly he meant to address it to all the individuals in the church, but in a much greater sense, his real audience is the congregation in Philippi. He is writing to them as one family of God's people. When he says they need to rejoice in the Lord, he says he is saying they need to rejoice together as a family of believers. When he says they are to be reasonable and focus on the Lord's return and their calling and their common mission of presenting the gospel, he's saying they need to do it as a congregation. When he speaks of the need to pray about everything, he's saying they need to pray together as well as individually. When he speaks of thinking about putting into practice the things of God, he means that they are to do it as a church family, as one fellowship, as well as in their own personal lives. Do we view ourselves in this place as a family? Do we see the need to be of one mind and one purpose and one calling and united together in a common goal of shining brightly for Christ in this area and this generation? Or are we just a group of individuals who come into this meeting house every Sunday and then go home? Believer, this congregation needs you to be a full active part of it and to commit fully to this fellowship. If not, if we only see ourselves as individuals that are going to make sure we keep ourselves right and not give ourselves too much bother and put our own interests first, then we will fall into the same problems that the Philippians were facing. So as August comes to an end and September draws closer, and the organization start up, let us ask ourselves what more we can be doing to pursue holiness and what more we can be doing together to build up the work and ministry of this church fellowship. Let's give ourselves some baller for the sake of the gospel. If we're asked to do something, let's not say we're too busy or too old or have too much else on. Let's not say that we've done enough already and it's someone else's turn. Let's rearrange our personal lives for the sake of the work of the gospel in this place. How is all this possible? The Holy Spirit's asking an awful lot of us tonight in this passage. Well, my favorite part of the whole book of Philippians is found in chapter one, verses nine and 10, where Paul says this. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. We can only do all these things tonight if our love for God, for Jesus, for each other as a congregation, and for the lost abounds more and more. This is why Paul says that this is his prayer for the Philippians. This is the one thing he desires above all else. And if he could have one thing, this is what he would have. That their love would abound more and more. Let us all pray together tonight.
Heavenly Father, it's our prayer tonight that our love for each other, for Jesus and for the people of this area, may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We pray that you would fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. Amen.